Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Friday, July 14th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Southeast Alaska's House District 2 Representative Rebecca Hemshoot wrapped up her first legislative session in May. The session ended with weeks of negotiation over the state budget. Lawmakers approved a one-time allocation for education, $680 per student. When Governor Mike Dunleavy signed the budget into law a few weeks later, he vetoed $200 million, including half of that one-time education funding. Representative Hemshoot sat down with KFSK's Hannah Floor to discuss how the session played out. The number one thing I hear about in communities across the district is ferry service, and he did cut $10 million out of the budget for ferries. I'm not 100% clear what that $10 million was supposed to do, but it operated as some kind of a backstop in case the federal funding doesn't come through. And Senator Stedman could speak more clearly about it. But my understanding is as long as the federal funding comes through, that will not negatively impact us for now. So um, I was really worried when I saw a cut to ferries, but it sounds like that cut won't be as um, dire as it sounded like at first. The, the impact that I am absolutely certain will be felt in House District 2 and across the state is the 50% slash to the education funding that the legislature approved. And that, you know, specifically in Petersburg, for better or for worse, uh, the budget for 24 did not include an increase from the state, I guess, recognizing the risk of budgeting on money that wasn't yet approved. Um, but districts like Sitka did plan on a certain amount coming from the state. And now they're having to revise down and look at cuts. You know, it's well over 80% of a school district's budget is personnel. So at this point, so late in the game, districts across the region and across the state have to decide, do we cut educators that we've committed to, or do we cut programs that we know benefit kids And that's really what makes up a school district. There's no way to cut the education budget without impacting students. I'm curious what's happening in the legislature that you're worried could have the most negative impact on your constituents. I think a really big risk that we're facing right now is the recognition that a broad-based tax is likely necessary in the state. And I think a lot of us are sort of reckoning with that. None of us is excited about it, but as the legislature and the governor discuss what kind of broad-based tax is appropriate or or the right fit for Alaska, I see a battle coming over sales tax versus income tax. So if a tax is required, in my rural district, the least harm would be done through an income tax rather than a sales tax. And the way I explain that is if you're paying $5 for a gallon of milk in Anchorage in places like Petersburg, that price is going to be quite a bit higher. And then if you go even further away to places like Angoon or Cake or Tenakee, those prices could be twice what Anchorage pays. And so a sales tax really impacts our communities. What is making you hopeful right now? Uh, The fact that we're, I think, I hope, closer than ever to actually looking at the structural deficit the state is facing. As painful as that conversation has been, 
and is going to be, it's a necessary conversation. And so it's, it's maybe not the right word to say, I'm hopeful that we'll have that hard conversation, but I don't think Alaska can move forward without it. And so um, I'm ready for that conversation. And I guess the hope for me is that we bring our best intentions to the table and go through the difficult conversation and come up with solutions so that we're not underfunding education and so that our state agencies aren't strangled with flat funding year after year after year in the face of inflation. That was Alaska State Representative Rebecca Hemshute of House District 2. The full conversation can be found at kfsk.org. Wrangell's search and rescue helped recover six people from a grounded boat on Tuesday. The boat, which was about six miles south of Wrangell, was left aground by a rapidly dropping tide. Fire Chief Tim Boonis says Wrangell's search and rescue got a call for help at about a quarter after 10 a.m. We got a call from the Wrangell Harbor Master that there was a boat in Circle Bay that was possibly going to capsize with six people on board. We dispatched an airplane and a uh, one of the charter boats, which is one of our members, responded. We took some pumps and some medical equipment just in case, and there were a couple of crab boats that were in the area that were able to go over and offer some assistance and get the people off the boat. Uh, the boat actually sat down fairly flat, so it was kind of a good one where nobody got wet, nobody got hurt. Bunis says he believes the boat went aground while the occupants were sightseeing. My understanding was is that they were watching seals on a rock and they just kind of floated over onto a rock. So, And the tide was a fairly good-sized tide, so the water left them fairly rapidly. Bunis says Wrangell's search and rescue was able to mobilize quickly. They had an airplane in the air within six minutes of receiving the call from the harbor master and a boat on the way with supplies shortly afterward. We had a boat loading up. They were on the on their boat, so they came over to the airplane float and picked up some medical equipment and some pumps just in case they had to do some pumping. He says it's lucky that the boat was up on the rocks fairly flat and that it was so close that volunteers were able to get to the site very quickly. Bunis says that people sightseeing around Wrangell should be mindful of the area's large tidal swings and rocks that can lie just below the surface. Just kind of be aware of your... Uh, your surroundings and and uh, know that the that the water can leave fairly rapidly out from underneath you. In total, Buna says about ten Wrangell search and rescue volunteers responded: two on the boat, one in the airplane, and the rest in town helping to organize supplies for the boat to take out to the grounded vessel. After the six boaters were safely brought back to shore, Buna says the boat was recovered and he saw it up on a trailer at Shoemaker Harbor on Wednesday. Talking about a record cruise visitor rebound is one thing. Experiencing it is another. Sitka recently had its first of two huge visitor days this summer, and the reaction, at least at the official level, wasn't great. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka. Sitka hosted over 9,700 visitors in one day on June 21st. That's roughly 1,400 more people than live in the community, based on the latest data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Sitkins understood that there would be days like this, visitors shoulder-to-shoulder along the roughly five blocks of Lincoln Street that were closed to vehicle traffic for the occasion. Mayor Stephen Eisenbeis owns a retail store in the heart of this area, 
At Tuesday's assembly meeting, he wondered aloud whether June 21st was a bonanza or a lesson in overcrowding. After the day had uh, slowed down a little bit, I took the liberty to walk up and down the street and talk to uh, some of the vendors to to see how that day went. Um, Not everybody was available. A lot of people were still really busy. um, But the general consensus that I got was uh, if you had a storefront, um, you said it was too many people. If you had a food truck or you were out on the street like that, um, you generally liked it because you sold out early and you got to go home. Um, so, um, you know, the, the feeling even from, from the merchants who standed to profit from that was that 10,000 people in one day was, was far too many. And I, I say that not because it was one or two, um, but it was everybody. Sitka Administrator John Leach said that he also had taken a walk downtown to visit with business owners and subsequently communicated his concerns to Sitka's representatives in the Cruise Lines International Association. Leach told the assembly that it wasn't just Sitka's Main Street that was overcrowded. Trying to do work at City Hall, our bandwidth was gone uh, and our, our computers slowed to a crawl and our phones weren't working. So um, I know other communities have had these issues before. I know Juno had these issues when they had their cruise boom. Uh, and I, I reminded some of the folks that I talked to uh, in the cruise industry of some of the early discussions we had about overcommitment of Sitka resources uh, and, and where is that balance. So we're learning that right now. Off of Main Street, other organizations were also feeling the pinch. The Sitka Sound Science Center published a letter to the editor and the Daily Sentinel on June 23rd, two days after the big day, announcing that they were reducing hours and closing at 3 p.m. Center Director Lisa Bush says her organization values the interaction with visitors and the opportunity to educate people about science, salmon, and the ocean. But we are just realizing, you know, what our carrying capacity is for that, for our staff and for our building. We just can't take all the people that want to come all at once. Bush says closing earlier will give her staff a chance to prepare for the next day, as well as fulfill other functions at the center, which in addition to its aquarium and salmon hatchery is a year-round scientific research facility. The high volume of cruise passengers in Sitka on June 21st was caused by the simultaneous visits of the Ruby Princess with just over 3,000 passengers, the Eurodam with just over 2,000 passengers, and the Quantum of the Seas with 4,600 passengers. Those same three ships are scheduled to be in port again one more time on July 19th. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Juno residents who run short-term rentals will have to register their businesses with the city starting this fall. The Juno Assembly approved the program at a meeting last Monday night. City leaders say it'll help make sure operators are paying sales tax, and it'll give the city data on the short-term rental market. Assemblymember Wade Byron said it was the result of many meetings over the last year. This um, ordinance did not just come about overnight. It wasn't just something that was quickly rammed through. We've had multiple, multiple discussions on it. The registration program will assign a unique number to each unit. Operators will have to include that number in online listings or face a $25 fine. The Assembly made some changes to the program after rental operators spoke against an earlier version. They also approved a later start date. Still, five short-term rental operators spoke in opposition, including a bed-and-breakfast owner, Dale Anderson. 
creating another hurdle for me to climb over with the threat of penalties is anti-commerce. The registration program doesn't limit the number of rentals one person can register, nor does it charge a registration fee. But Assemblymember Michelle Hale acknowledged that more regulation might be coming, and the data from the program could help shape it. Judy Sherburn says she's off. Juno's short-term rental registration program will begin in October. Also in Juno, after years of planning, Juno's Thane Community Garden is in its first growing season. It's another opportunity for gardeners and gardeners-to-be to get their hands dirty and put organic food on the dinner table. Yvonne Crumry has the story. Judy Sherburn says she's often thinking about how people in Juno get their food. I've heard predictions that if we did not have a barge for a week, that we'd be, we'd be down, we'd be pretty lean in a couple weeks. It'd be pretty serious. Sherburn organized the Thane Community Garden. She's been gardening for years and says she wanted there to be a space for her neighbors to come together to plant in a sunny, flat community space. The garden has about 40 beds. They're all in use with new growth coming up. Sheep Creek rushes by in the background. Some beds have plastic hoops covering the veggies. Others have shiny windmills to deter ravens. Lauren Smoker helped get the product going. She has her own 20-foot by 4-foot bed. I've got um, some strawberries, some radish, spinach, shallots, and a broccoli. Her chives are tall already. It's Smoker's first time growing vegetables, and she's not the only beginner, Sherburn says. Yeah, there's a lot of newbies here. Yeah, and the the part about that is not only new to gardening, but new to getting to know their neighbors. She says she's already made new friends in the garden, and she hopes that what they grow here will help put quality food on the table and lower their grocery bills. She estimates about 10% of the people who are tending plots this summer live on fixed incomes, which makes it harder to keep up with rising food costs. While the plots aren't large enough to live off of, Sherburn says even a little bit of fresh organic food can make a difference in someone's health. She gestures at a row of kale. You know, it's not going to make or break somebody that might be in that situation, but it could complement what they're they're able to do with their income. You know, like I was referring to salads. You know, having a fresh salad on the table every night is huge. It's huge. Sherburn says she plans to start offering classes soon. She wants to teach people how to make the most of a garden plot in this climate and what nutrients they can get from the different things they can grow. In Juno, I'm Yvonne Crumry. Most Alaskans can attest to paying a lot at the grocery store. But data released last week by Alaska's Department of Labor and Workforce De- Development suggests food prices in Kodiak could be the highest in the country. Kirsten Dobrith reports. State economists studied survey data from last year that compared the costs of living in more than 200 communities across the country. The survey looked at six categories, and Kodiak topped the list nationwide for two out of the six, groceries and health care. Dan Robinson is the research chief for the Department of Labor and Workforce Development. He says on the whole, there's less of a gap between the cost of living in Alaska compared to the lower 48 than there used to be. Broadly, The costs for Alaskans since the 80s have come down relative to the rest of the country. 
That doesn't mean they're less expensive here. Robinson says it's hard to put a finger on why health care costs are so much higher in Kodiak, but groceries come down to location. Kodiak, like many other places in the state, has a relatively small population and has to ship in nearly all its food. Add in COVID-caused supply chain problems and inflation, which reached a 41-year high in the state last year, and prices have soared even higher. Kodiak can't officially claim the number one spot for food costs, though. The survey doesn't include every community in the U.S., and it only includes data from four cities in Alaska. Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau, and Kodiak, which all had higher costs than the national average in each of the categories surveyed. Robinson says it's not all bad news, though. Our inflation, uh, like the nation's, is coming down. Uh, it's still it's still higher than average, but it's coming down. That being said, sheer logistics means some things, like groceries, will likely stay more expensive in Alaska. Nobody should think that in the next two years, their bag of groceries in Kodiak is going to cost the same amount as it does in Bend, Oregon. We'll continue to have high prices relative to other parts of the country for the same reason we have for a long time. Meanwhile, Alaskans will just have to keep eating the costs. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobroth. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.